This article is about introducing multiple property ownership as a conceptual framework. To capture different forms and types of property owned by households beyond their place of residence. What attracted me in the first place to tiny houses, I suppose, is because I found myself in in one of the demographics that are interested in tiny houses. I was an older single woman who at the time didn't really have anywhere to live. I was uh, first attracted to uh, housing studies when I read Jim Kamenis' book, The Myth of Home Ownership. And uh, I, I, want, I was very interested in the, in the ideas that Kameni had and uh, tried to look whether they uh, hold in the Finnish context. Welcome to the Housing Journal podcast. We are a collaboration between the three best housing journals, Housing Studies, Housing Theory and Society, and the International Journal of Housing Policy. From multiple property ownership through to tiny houses, we've got some great stories coming for you this week. I'm Emma Power, and I'm thrilled you can join us. First up, we have Dallas Rogers from the International Journal of Housing Policy, who talks with Justin Cady about multiple property ownership as a new framework to conceptualise how housing investment practices have shifted since the global financial crisis. Then Julie Lawson sits down with the Editor-in-Chief of Housing Theory and Society to talk about his experiences editing the journal. And we finish up with Beth Watts from Housing Studies who catches up with Heather Shearer about the growing tiny house movement. We get started with Dallas Rogers and Justin Cady, who is an urban geographer and housing researcher at the Faculty of Spatial Planning, the Vienna University of Technology. So Justin, it's really great uh, having you on the show. Uh, you've written a paper recently, and I'll get you to introduce it in a second. It's part of a special issue called Multiple Property Ownership in Times of Late Home Ownership a new conceptual vocabulary. And I wanted to just talk to you about the key moving parts in that paper. But could you just tell me who you wrote the paper with first? Yes, so this has been a collaborative paper together with Cody Hoxtenbach and Christian Lenners. And it's part of a special issue. Could you tell me a little bit about the special issue itself? Yeah, so the special issue is um, has the same title as our paper. So it's uh, called Multiple Property Ownership in Times of Late Home Ownership. It includes five original papers and one commentary and uh, tries to use the vocabulary that we set out in the, in the introductory article um, and uh, use this for different case studies. You better start us at the beginning here. What is multiple property ownership? Yes, um, that's probably the most important question here. Um, multiple property ownership is a conceptual framework that we propose to capture different forms and types of property owned by households beyond their place of residence. So in the years since the global financial crisis in 2008, we've seen a notable growth of investments 
in residential properties, not only by corporate landlords, but also by private individual owners. And there is a growing literature that analyzes how households acquire additional property beyond their primary residence. In the literature, that was our impression at least, however, such properties are mostly considered in separate analyses and not in a common framework. Mm. So there is literature, for example, on private small-scale landlordism. Uh, there's also literature on the proliferation of second homes, but to just uh, have two examples. There's also literature as a third examples on dwellings that are held by households as investment properties. The special issue was an attempt to bring these separate literatures together. And um, we use multiple property ownership as a, you could say, conceptual banner to bring these separate literatures together and to focus on households, properties that households hold beyond their primary home. So in our understanding, this includes second homes. It includes so-called buy-to-let properties. It, it includes holiday rentals, properties to support your children in the housing market, um, but also properties that are held as uh, uh, so-called safe deposit boxes. Mm. And is that what you mean? You write about a typology of multiple property ownership. Is that the typology that you're talking about there? Yes, yeah, so this is the topology where we set out how these um, different properties that we uh, that we summarize under the term multiple property ownership, how they differ, uh, and but also what they have in common. Another part of the paper looks at consumption versus investment dynamics here. Could you just talk me through that briefly? Yes. Yeah, so one interesting thing that we uh, found is that um, the different property types that we uh, summarize under our conceptual banner of multiple property ownership, they differ to some extent in terms of the purpose and use of the property. So for some properties, the, the consumption value uh, is actually more important um, than for others where the investment value um, dominates. So a classic example would be that for um, the consumption value, you, uh, you could think of second homes that the households use for vacation. But um, if you think for, uh, about investment value, you would, uh, of course, think uh, about properties like investment properties, uh, safe deposit boxes uh, that, house that households hold. But if you think about this uh, in more detail, that you, then you also see that this distinction between consumption and investment value of different properties is not always as clear-cut as it seems. Mm. So, for example, a household may acquire a property to support the children on the housing market and um, give the property to them uh, to live there. But at the same time, they may also um, eye this property as a possibility to um, have um, an accumulating um, asset stock uh, and sell it later on um, for a higher price. So, so this distinction is not always as clear as it seems. And the other thing is also that the, that the purpose and use of the property, it may also change over time. Right? Mm. Um, I mean, that's pretty interesting because you have kind of classic use and exchange value kind of dynamics in there. But what you're saying is that these can get tangled up in different ways so you might be using it to, the use value might be to have your kids in the home, but it's also an investment vehicle. And that might just be a snapshot at one moment in time. This could change over time as well. I think that's really interesting. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I think also that um, I mean in this section, I think there's also a, li a little critique of of the housing studies focus more broadly because I think tenure, tenure and use categories are very dominant in in housing studies, and this is something that we uh, go beyond a bit with the paper by saying, okay, so the common denominator here for these different kind of properties is is more about ownership type, and it's not so much about how these properties are used. Can you tell me a little bit about the drivers of this? Yeah, so the, the, I think there's like three main factors that are particularly important here. One factor is the availability of capital. So wealth concentration has increased in the last decades, particularly among financial and economic elites, but also among upper middle class households. And these households are looking for safe and profitable places to invest. And this is where multiple property ownership uh, comes into play. A second factor that uh, is related is uh, low interest rates uh, alongside the political support for high house prices that we've seen in many advanced societies. And this has made real estate an appealing investment. And the third point that uh, we think is quite important is that we have seen that housing policies in many countries have relaxed rent regulation or more broadly have increased landlord power. And this has also, of course, made it more lucrative to invest, particularly in the rental sector or also in the holiday rental sector. That's really interesting. And I guess the question that comes from that is, what should we do about this? And I guess you've got a typology. So does that mean we need a typology of responses as well? Yes, I'm pretty sure. So I think when it comes to policy reactions, there is really a need also to differentiate what we can do with uh, with the concept of multiple property ownership is uh, see the broader picture. Um, but given that uh, the different properties uh, that we have under this uh, concept differ um, in terms of how they're used um, and uh, in terms of uh, what the purpose is of acquiring them, um, it definitely needs differentiation and um, different policies to, to tackle this issue. Justin, it's been really great talking to you today. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was great. And that was Dallas Rogers from the International Journal of Housing Policy. And you can check out our Twitter handle at IJHP Editors. And now I'll hand over to Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society. So thanks very much, uh, Hanu, for coming on to the to the show today. And you're calling from uh, from Finland, of course, and where you're the professor of sociology. That's right. And so you've been with the journal for quite some time, Housing Theory and Society. When did you start? I started as an editor at uh, in uh, 2015, but uh, uh, before that I had been a member of the editorial board and, uh, and associate editor learning the job for two years before that. Okay, so there was actually almost an apprenticeship and a, you were almost a rookie to begin. And then... Yeah, <laughs> so what, what attracted you to this particular journal why why is it relevant to you uh, i was following the beginning of the journal I, uh, I published my first papers in in its predecessor 
Scandinavian housing and planning research, and then the owner of the uh, journal IBF in Sweden uh, wanted to change it to a, a theory journal, and, and that was pretty close to my own own interests. Uh, I was uh, first attracted to uh, housing studies when I read Jim Kemeny's book, The Myth of Home Ownership, and and uh, I, I want I was very interested in the in the ideas that Kemeny had, and uh, tried to look whether they uh, hold in the Finnish context. But the dissertation became quite different from that. Yeah, indeed. It, it, I guess housing in theory and society covers a lot of different theoretical perspectives. Perhaps you could give us a bit of an overview of what areas readers might expect to, to find there. Nearly all areas of housing research are represented. Uh, I guess most of the articles that we publish uh, uh, fall under the topic of social sciences, social science, sociology, social policy, polit- political science, uh, and all, we also get substantial amount of economics papers also, though, though this is not an economics journal. Okay, so it sounds like there's a range of disciplines that are invited to be involved, but the level of discussion is on the underlying or broader uh, social relationships or movements, changes that that are discussed. It, this is where you'd come to that the journal for, I guess, which would be different from other journals in that sense. We're now told about uh, housing theory and journal, society in uh, in conferences to graduate students and others. I've, I've said that this is the only theory journal in in housing studies. Uh, so the, our focus is theory. So, I mean, what kind of theories? I mean, what, what sort of things have been coming up the last five, six years in particular? So yeah. much different things, but uh, like elsewhere uh, uh, in social sciences, materialities is something that's come up uh, now of great interest is uh, how housing is linked to electronic communication, uh, IT. Uh, for example, we have a, a, an article in the latest issue about uh, the platform real estate uh, things and uh, things like that. That's that's of, of great interest. And well, yeah. and of course, there's been some um, there's have been some great articles uh, trying to lead the way in terms of uh, a research agenda in that area, and. Yeah. Also, uh, in the past, trying to link um, political economy and housing more closely together, bringing housing back in to political economy discussions around financialization, yes. for example. Yeah, yeah, finance, financialization is, is a big thing also. And also. and also you see coming out of even other areas like development studies, uh, the capabilities approach, which also yeah. something uh, featured recently and... Um, and also there's some, I guess, key thinkers involved in the, the journal in terms of uh, uh, those who are arguing for particular methodologies or or research approaches. Um, uh, great debates uh, with Pete Somerville, Boo Bengston, um, the critical realists. Uh, that's always uh, been quite uh, interesting reading in this journal. Um, yeah. So 
actually, who who owns a journal? I mean, what sits behind it? And I see on the cover, for example, um, if people look at housing theory in society, they see this sort of really old picture of some sort of castle in the background. What what's that? What's that all about? That's uh, the journal is owned by IBF, the Institute of Housing and Urban Research, and in uh, Sweden. Uh, hosted by the Uppsala University and the institute uh, owns the journal and it's uh, the publisher is Taylor and Francis but the institute owns it and the institute used to be situated in in Gävle, uh, a small town uh, near Uppsala and, and the picture on the cover is, is an old picture of, of Gävle wow. city. Oh. town actually oh that's really interesting and now, now that now the institute is is in Uppsala and I said it's it's part of the Uppsala University the the people who work there have affiliations also to the university departments great okay and I also noticed we've got there's also two new uh, people coming on to the editorial um, board well, we, we have Tim Blackwell, who's a political economist from, from the Institute, and Susan Urban, who's a, a, a sociologist also at the Institute. So, we, so our new editor board members are, are from the Institute, but we are looking for outsiders also. And, and most of our, our other editor, editor board members come from, from elsewhere, yeah. not, not Uppsala. We have uh, one one of our specialities, though it's not uh, original in the way that this would be the only journal in the world that has this. Is we publish focus articles, and focus articles are ones that we think that might uh, open some new lines of thought or or spark off some debate, and uh, we publish them uh, slightly edited by our, our editorial board and then uh, we invite open peer comment commentators to comment them so so the refereeing process is in a way public uh, and this format uh, has been pretty successful yeah that's great and so so you actually get a debate in the journal itself and you you get maybe six or seven different people uh, commenting on a on a particular article, and and uh, I think um, can we can we, we we saw the recent one on uh, Jim Jim uh, Kemeny with uh, Mark Stevens' article and the role of of that particular theoretical perspective um, and its relevance or non relevance today. That was uh, a pretty hefty, lively debate there. That brings me to another question. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who've been rejected and feel it really hard. What? Why? Why do they get rejected? And we get around 150 new uh, submissions every year, and uh, the most common reason for rejection is that the we think that the paper is not. Theoretical enough. It might be a good paper, anyhow. It might be a good empirical paper, but but there's uh, not that kind of theoretically edge that that we want want our papers to have have, and that's the reason of rejection. Of course, the quality is also if it's not good enough. So if it's gone gone to refereeing and and 
referees say that no, that's that's also another reason. And the third minor reason is that the paper is not about housing. <laughs> well, that's pretty clear. So I mean, well, they... we understand housing quite broadly, but but yeah. sometimes the paper papers are not about housing. Or uh, okay, so what's in the latest issue? What? Yeah, okay, the latest issue. It's a collection of different kind of uh, articles. There's something about energy efficiency, housing price, platform real estate, public housing, evaluating housing outcomes, all kinds of things, uh, more or less theoretical. Some are some are working on uh, some, uh, most of our papers are actually working on some empirical material. So. Well, thank you very much, uh, Hanu. And thank you, Julie. And uh, we look forward to um, to hearing more from from authors, actually, from the journal and the podcast in the future. So thanks yeah. very much. Thank you. That was Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society. And their Twitter handle is at Housing Theory. And last up, we have Beth Watts from Housing Studies on the movement to tiny houses. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the Housing Journal podcast, Dr. Heather Shearer. Heather is Research Fellow at the Cities Research Institute at Griffith University, Queensland, Australia, and we're going to be discussing her recently published Housing Studies paper on tiny houses in Australia, which was co-authored with Paul Burton. The paper has been made free to view on the Housing Studies website for a limited period, so please do go and check it out. Welcome to the podcast, Heather. Hello, good morning. Uh, It was a really fascinating paper to read. I enjoyed it very much. So just to get us started, tell me what attracted you to tiny houses as a research topic? What attracted me in the first place to tiny houses, I suppose, is because I found myself in in one of the demographics that are interested in tiny houses, I was an older single woman who at the time didn't really have anywhere to live. And I found tiny houses on social media, as most people do. And I thought that they were wonderfully interesting. And being a researcher, and I'm sure all researchers are the same, I suddenly suddenly thought, well, is there any research on this topic? And I looked around and I found absolutely nothing apart from one or two papers and quite a few books on it and, and social media. So obviously I then got really excited and decided to start looking into tiny houses and the the whole movement in itself. So I did most, I'm mostly a social scientist. So I did things like surveys and interviews to try and find out about it and social media analysis. So that's a little hint at the methods and people can um, read in full about what you did in the paper. But let's let's get to the findings. Based on your research, what can you tell us then about why people are motivated to live in tiny houses and the kinds of people that make that choice? You've you've given us a bit of a hint. Is it is it all older single ladies or is there some diversity? <laughs> no, there is a, a huge amount of diversity. And that's one of the the problems that I found and in my um, collaborative collaboration with Paul Burton um, is that there's enormous diversity of people who who are interested in tiny houses and I also want to make clear that there's an even bigger difference between people who actually live in tiny houses and those who are interested so they tended to be hipster type for want of a better word inner city 
young uh, single people who couples who are interested in downsizing for environmental reasons, the whole downsizing movement, not uh, housing affordability runs throughout all the demographics. Then, of course, as I mentioned, there are older, mostly mostly women, mostly single, who find themselves in quite parlous economic circumstances because they've either been renting all their lives or else they've been in a relationship and, and had a, a house and no longer own that. And um, so they find themselves finding it difficult to find housing as well as work. And um, there's quite a lot of people in that demographic in the and there's also people who one would consider, I suppose, count very distinctly countercultural, who who don't want to live in the standard, I suppose, neoliberal city environment, and who want to live off grid, mostly in rural areas. And others ones would just be young couples, say, for example, just starting out on their their journey, who can't afford to live anymore and don't want to live in group houses, want to start a family, etc. What we did find, though, is Paul Burton and I did some previous research and we tried to categorise tiny houses. And we found that incredibly difficult because there's certain, there's no real definition of tiny house. And of course, most people around the live, world live in what would consider tiny houses. So this is very much a sort of UK, Australia, New Zealand, uh, United States, Canadian type. There's quite a lot of interest in Europe as well. And we found that, well, if you're going to call something a tiny house on wheels by dint of its being on wheels, well, then it could also be a caravan or a trailer. If you're going to do it by size, then obviously studio apartments or flats could also be a tiny house. So the further extent of our research, we pretty much sort of decided that a tiny house is not really defined by the dwelling itself, but by the characteristics of the people who live in tiny houses. And these tended to be, well, we use the word counterculture because there's distinct um, themes that the people who are interested in tiny houses almost without fail are interested in environmental sustainability, in community, which probably needs to be unpacked a bit, uh, housing affordability, um, easing of planning regulations so that they can live in their dwelling of choice. Yes, and so, so that is pretty much the basis of what we wrote about, that we found it's not the dwelling itself per se, but the characteristics of the people who live in the tiny houses. Yeah, I really enjoyed what you had to say about how we can define tiny houses, um, not as a type of housing, but maybe as something cultural, and was really fascinated by these sort of these ideas that fit, but also intention that this is a sort of countercultural choice, but it's also informed by kind of economic constraints and issues with housing affordability. So a really fascinating subject, which I think, you know, speaks to the wider housing studies literature and really, really well. So I'm interested just to close. Have uh, have you found out about what it's like to live in a tiny house? I mean, you you described them, them as wonderfully interesting and something maybe you were perhaps personally tempted by. Do they live up to those expectations and people's hopes when they move into a tiny house? They do. In fact, without exception, and bear in mind, this is qualitative research, so I can't extrapolate this to everybody who lives in a tiny house. But people who live in tiny houses, they love them. They is a interesting, and I, I do have some follow-up research, a survey I'm just analysing at the moment, 
And a lot of people don't stay in tiny houses that long. And one of the reasons is that obviously people don't stay in every dwelling type for, for that long because often people might start in a small flat and move to a, 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 a townhouse or a, a detached house or, and then back to a small flat. But um, there are issues. The one lady who didn't like the tiny house, and it was nothing whatsoever to do with her tiny house, it was the fact that the local government planning regulations she was constantly terrified that her neighbours would complain and the council would tell her to move on. And she just felt it was too insecure for her stage of life. She was 70. And um, other than that, the people love it. And there's really good um, information that's come out of it is that even if they've moved on, they, they look back on their experience in tiny houses as teaching them to that it's possible to live off grid, that it's possible to live more consciously and more sustainably and to question the day-to-day -day use of our resources, such as flushing toilets or where does our water come from? Um, do you have to drive to get food? And also the regulatory system under which most of us have to live. And um, I suppose basically we I have started another survey. So we got 840 responses this time, which was very good. And um, we've found pretty much the same results based on a very preliminary um, analysis. And of course, we will write it up and submit it. Um, but the regulatory hurdles are the biggest barrier to the tiny house movement, whereas the same almost cultural drivers are still the same, a desire to live more sustainably, a desire to live in a community with shared things such as community gardens or shared community facilities like kitchens and laundries and even um, cars and that sort of stuff and tools. And privacy yet community. And that's definitely come out very strongly this time. It is less of a whole thing about anti-establishment freedom, but more... I suppose a more mature idea that community in the, the whole environment, but not anti-establishment type counterculture, but more um, a change in the whole concept of, of how it is like to live in, in post-COVID um, or during COVID. Um, and I think COVID is what's caused the slight change. Mm, that's, that's great research for the future. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So many research avenues um, ripe for exploration here. Comparative research and I think the regulatory, regulatory regime in particular um, really speak to me. So thank you so much for joining us. And can I encourage our listeners to go and explore the, the paper and all its richness? Thanks, Heather. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Thanks. <laughs>